everyone, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. We've got double the fun today, Jenna. Two guests. Double the pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> got that Friday mood, Mark. Jenna's dancing. I know you guys can't see it right now, but she's busting out into song and dance already. We're being joined by Wendy Rice, who's one of our co-workers in the Africa department, and Tammy Ware, who's one of our zookeepers in the interpretive department. And they just went on a really amazing trip to Kenya, which we're going to hear all about. But I guess to start off, thank you guys so much for joining us. Like We're happy to have both of you here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we've talked to Wendy a few times um, since we introduced her with our line episode and then when we did a Fritz episode. And then Tammy has also worked as a temp in our department and a few other areas in the zoo, um, but is now full-time permanent in the interpretive department. So do you want to give a very brief background on kind of your zoo start here? Yeah, absolutely. So I started at the zoo in 2015 and I came into the Wild Encounters Department for a season. Uh, but during that time, I actually started volunteering in the Africa Department and really loved it here and got hired on as a seasonal pretty quickly. And while I was a seasonal, um, I got the opportunity to then become a temp whenever I was needed. And luckily I got to help with uh, Fiona when she was really little and um, had to move on. Unfortunately, my temporary position here ended, but ended up in the interpretive department, and I've now been there for five years. It hasn't been that long. It's crazy to realize that I've been there for five years, but yeah. So So. we're familiar with Tammy, and she's familiar with the Africa department, and the only reason I said keep it brief is because we have so much amazing stuff to share about (laughs) what their trip today, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again about some specific interpretive animal in the future, and we can hear more about that, but you did have a cool start, a different start than a lot of people didn't start off in the zoo world. So anyways, uh, we wanted to tell you a little bit about the American Association of Zookeepers. We call it AZAC. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, it's basically, and these two can help me um, describe it better probably, but it's basically, we call it a chapter, a group of volunteer keepers or zoo employees that get together and help raise funds for animal conservation. And it's a nonprofit that's nationwide and just a really cool opportunity for zookeepers or like I said, Some zoos allow people who work at a zoo but are not zookeepers to join, and it's it's run by us, and we do it on our free time. During our lunch, we have meetings, and then out of work, we have events, and we've had a really successful chapter. Back in 2013, Wendy started it. We didn't have one. They had one way back when, but it had been like 20 years since it existed here. Yeah, yeah. It still existed on paper and they kept paying dues. So luckily the paperwork portion was done, but the chapter wasn't like actively doing anything. Um, so yeah, in 2013, I was like, let's get this thing fired up again. And luckily there was an amazing group of people here at the time, like Jenna and Tammy and, um, Tammy came a little later, but people who were willing to like join in and help. And, um, yeah, it's amazing. I think our chapter has been really successful because of the incredible community support that we have. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't see anything that our chapter is doing fundamentally differently, but com- our community is amazing. We already know that just being here in Cincinnati. And thankfully for us, it, um, it kind of trickled into our AZAC chapter event. So that's really cool. Yeah. So a lot of you members have probably been to one or more of our events. and We really, really appreciate that. Or you might follow our Facebook page, which if you don't, we suggest um, the Greater Cincinnati Chapter American Association of Zookeepers on Facebook. It's very long. It's a lot of words. <laughs> but you can find a lot of information about our events when we do have them. It's been slower because of the like the pandemic and COVID and, and everything. But yeah, between the three of us here, we've 
kind of been officers um, until just recently. This is the first year Wendy and I took a break and we're, <laughs> you know, stepping back a little bit and Tammy's been doing an amazing job, of course, with help of others, but taking over and, um, but we've all had different positions and helped with all sorts of fundraisers and it's something we're really proud of and we feel like we can make a difference because we have this opportunity through the chapter. So one of the biggest fundraisers, it's a national fundraiser called Bowling for Rhinos, um, is something that we've been really successful at as a chapter. And what is it the past four or five years, we've at least been in the top four fundraising chapters out of the nation for this event. Yeah, yes yeah. we have. That's kind of huge to be like, we, we didn't even exist, you know, except for 10 years ago, we restarted and to build up to one of the top earning chapters really is a feather in our cap. Like that's like humble brag because <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of work. A lot of work goes into this fundraiser. And this is the only fundraiser that every AZAC chapter is required to commit funds to and to donate to. Not every chapter does bowling necessarily, but um, bowling has certainly been our bread and butter. It's worked out really good for us here. Yeah, and so Bowling for Rhinos, like I mentioned, it's a nationally, like, well, it's a national fundraiser that Wendy just said all the chapters must donate us at least a small amount of money to to be a part of AZAC. But we have other fundraisers that other chapters aren't doing, and other chapters have their own things that we don't do. So this is the only one that every chapter kind of has a part in. Um, and thanks to our community again, we've been really successful in the top four fundraising chapters for this specific Bowling for Rhinos event every year get to go on a trip or win the opportunity to visit either Indonesia or Africa and see what they're doing with these funds that we're raising. So Tammy and Wendy just got back from their trip. Uh, COVID set it off, so they went together. Usually they would go like one year and then the next person would go. Um, but if you guys want to talk a little bit about um, maybe just like the last Bowling for Rhinos we had pre this year. Yeah. Uh, we did online auctions stuff. Tammy, I'll let you like just explain a little bit about the past Bowling for Rhinos events and then. Yeah. When the pandemic hit, we were trying to figure out what to do because we could not like have an in-person event. Um, so we went the online auction route. I know a lot of chapters were doing that and everything, but we were very, very successful being able to do that. I was really surprised by all the support. It was kind of neat because we had people all across the country that were willing to bid on our items that we had. So we had all kind of things from um, our animals here at the zoo, but as well as just people art that they had made or, you know, random animal themed gift baskets. Um, so I was really lucky and fortunate to have all the support that we had for people. Um, and this was our first year back in person. So 2020, 2021, they were both virtual, online only. Um, it was a lot of work, um, a lot of shipping items oh, yeah. everywhere. I shipped an ostrich egg to Alaska, believe wow. it or not. Wow, that's <laughs> so um, I'm happy it got there intact. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, yeah, we were super excited to be able to get back in person this year and see everybody face to face. Yeah. So something we didn't mention is we would like literally get a group together and go knocking, basically uh, not yeah. really knocking, but walking into restaurants and things and asking for sponsors, which yeah. isn't fun. It doesn't come natural <laughs> to us. We all to get like this group like encouragement because going up to somebody and being like, hi, would you like to donate money? is not a fun thing to do, but our community is so supportive. We, we get yeah. things from sponsorships that are just straight money and a logo on the back of a t-shirt to um, gift certificates or, you know, memberships to places and that sort of thing. So in the future, if you have a company out there that would like to support Rhino or animal conservation, 
check us out. <laughs> Next <laughs> fall, we'll be looking for all this or probably late summer. Um, but because everyone was hurting from the pandemic, we were just going straight off animal art and anything people would donate as far yep. as that could be sold in an auction. We didn't have that big money coming in from sponsorships. We, you, we all still rocked it. Like yeah. 18 grand, I think we raised for rhinos one Last of those year. years. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So thank you to everyone who supported that. <laughs> yeah. And um, so Tammy and Wendy both won a trip based on different years. Yep. So I tech, well, technically Wendy was the winner for the 2019, but she had to forego the trip. So I was very, very lucky to be able to uh, win the trip for 2019. And then um, with everything going on and the trip getting postponed, Wendy became the winner for 2020. And then we still didn't go on our trip until 2022. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point they were trying to consolidate. There were so many winners that had been backed up. So they were like, let's just combine years. And um, so that meant that Tammy and I got to have that experience together, which was so, so amazing and so cool. And we got to each bring a plus one with us as well. So my little sister, uh, Chelsea tagged along with me. Yep. And my husband, Greg, he came with me. Yeah. And it was, it was so amazing. And this is like, I can honestly say for the first time in a long time, I feel hopeful about conservation after having this experience and I think that's the biggest thing that we're hoping to like convey to your listeners today is like it's not not all hope is lost there are organizations like Lewa that are doing amazing things and it's actually working yeah so this place that you guys went to in Kenya it's called the Lewa Conservancy will you talk about why it's so critical for rhino conservation specifically and you know, you, we say you guys won a trip. You did win an amazing trip and an amazing experience, but it's not like this is just a normal safari that you guys went out on. It was a very different trip where you guys got to see a whole different side of wildlife conservation. Will you just talk a little bit about Lewa and why it's so important? Sure. Do you want to take that? Yeah. Um, so Lewa Wildlife Conservancy, it's pretty neat. They're, they have a massive reserve. Um, we would go like out every day and sometimes you didn't even see the same place twice and we were there for 15 days so it's pretty amazing they had every kind of different ecosystem that you can imagine there was parts that looked like rainforest there were parts that looked like deserts there were parts that looked like grasslands parts that looked like more marshy areas and stuff so um they had all kind of different little ecosystems in this one reserve um so it's able to kind of fill a niche for a lot of different species. But on top of that, not only being able to have that um, for the animals, they also work really, really closely with the communities. And that was the biggest aspect. The biggest thing was their relationship with all of the communities and the surrounding communities because they wanted to figure out how to work with the communities and teach them and show them how they can survive side by side with wildlife instead of having that um, human-wildlife conflict, which is what happens with so many other places, so many other communities is you have wildlife that comes in, they're taking their food, they're taking their livestock or things like that, so the people just want to kill the wildlife. Um, but Leowa has figured out a way to be able to educate and to be able to support the communities um, and be able to teach them and give them what they need to be able to survive. So we literally got to go and visit like every facet of every department that runs Leowa, but also go out to the communities and see them for ourselves. Um, so Leowa has built like exclusion zones. Um, they've built like fencing areas where the communities are bordered um, to keep all of their wildlife out. And then they've also gone in and put in things like um, wells. They've built like water wells and boreholes and stuff like that to supply water to these communities. Mm -hmm and then shown them how to help raise crops and then be able to turn around and sell those crops to other places, other communities, restaurants, things like that. Um, so it was pretty interesting to see 
their relationship and how they all work together and how they have a um, respect for each other, honestly. And I think that's what's made it the biggest difference. That's why all of their populations are thriving there. That's why I'd say half the rhinos that we saw had a baby with them. It was spectacular to see the number. Um, but it really was building that relationship with the community and trying to work with them and not work against them. That's so important. So many conservation stories that we hear these days. You have to get the community buy-in. And, of course, they're going to be looking out for themselves and their family. But if you can educate and teach ways that they can, you know, thrive with or using some facet of the animals by tourism or something like the giant armadillo project, they're, mm -hmm. they're working with the community there. And it's like we have to le learn to coexist. And if Lewa is doing that and helping educate and bringing the community together, that is what makes it successful. Yeah. It honestly, it feels like Lewa's primary objective is the communities around them. Like that's the sense you get that it's animals are secondary and that their focus is on the people because they're in this area where there's just not a lot of opportunity. It's like, how do you provide for your family? And like most other places around the world, you strip your land of natural resources. You look at what's provided to you by nature. And so Lewa's goal is to try to minimize that or mitigate that as much as possible. And just like Tammy said, they have so many, so many different efforts. They built a clinic for the people there and they support and fund the clinic um, so that they understand that because Lewa's here, because these animals are here, we benefit by having a clinic. We benefit by having schools that are supported by Lewa. Um, the water projects are huge, especially because Tammy and I were there in the middle of a drought that had been going on for 18 months. And that was really eye-opening to see. Like it was, it was, it was hard. There were um, there were animals dropping dead left and right. The predators are doing great. Lewa, <laughs> the lions and hyenas are like living their best life. But even at Lewa, they had to supplementally feed the rhinos. That was one of the ways that they were making sure that the animals there were going to survive this wow. drought. They had watering holes that they were supplying water to, um, and it was really interesting because it got into these like conversations about like, is that really? Well, wild then is this really nature like how do you is there any wild left right right and I think that was the big like conclusion we all drew it's like if we if we're being honest with ourselves we have to like redesign what wild nature looks like and the truth is it has to be in some ways enclosed and protected and assisted because humans have done so so much damage it's like the only way to undo that is to assist and get in there and really be hands-on for a while and I think the hope and the goal is to be able to step back once these populations are reestablished, once the ecosystems are reestablished, things like that. But until we're there, um, places like Lewa are thriving because of human involvement mm -hmm. and intervention. And that's one of the craziest things when you have people that question zoos. And we've mentioned this before. There are good zoos. There are bad zoos. There are amazing zoos. There are horrible zoos. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, the majority of them are amazing. And we know there are things that the animals are doing here, which is hopefully inspiring people to care. And But people are asking, like, well, can they go back in the wild? Can you release them into the wild? And it's like, you, we just heard a perfect example. There's a conservation happening where they're literally feeding the wild animals yeah. in the wild. And it's just really unfortunate how severe things have become in some places. And it does mm -hmm. take human intervention to fix the human issues that, <laughs> you know, we caused. Right. Um, 
But the wild is a difficult place yeah. these days. And one of the hardest things to wrap my head around was the fact that Lewa is entirely fenced in. Mm -hmm. That is so bizarre to me. Yeah. The entirety of that place is, is surrounded by perimeter fencing. And as Tammy said, some of that is to mitigate the human-wildlife yeah. conflict, mm -hmm. to protect the, the communities that live right on the outside of Lewa, to make sure elephants don't go in and destroy crops, um, and to keep lions away from, you know, there are a lot of pastoral communities there, mm -hmm. so the lions from catching goats and sheep and things like that. Um, but even that, they've had to, they also run into their own issues. They had to create a special elephant corridor <laughs> to allow the elephants to be able to migrate out of Lewa and come back. So the elephants go up um, to the foot of Mount Kenya and even up into the mountain a little bit wow. at the dry season. Yeah, because they have to go looking for different food. So it's like even Lewa, even with their, as humans always seem to do when we fix a problem, we inadvertently create another one. <laughs> So they're even having to like constantly learn and grow and adapt as they go. And um, but yeah, I think that they attributed that was the the biggest reason for their success with rhino populations is that they're contained. We keep them here and we keep them someplace safe, and then mm -hmm. they can't be poached as easily. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a uh, that was hard to like feel great about that 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 being contained and fenced in, but it's necessary at this point in order to keep those animals safe. Do you know how many acres it is? No, it's like, fine if you Google. don't. Yeah, I can't remember. Well, I remember it being smaller than I thought. Like I thought it was actually going to be bigger than that. But you, I had heard some funny like stories from Wendy, and I haven't heard your side of things, Tammy. But like the elephants are kind of mischievous <laughs> and causing so mischievous. issues, right? Like, do you remember any of the like? Could you tell us one of the stories that it was was entertaining? Well, I mean. I didn't get to witness it firsthand, but Whitney, uh, Wendy got to, but I did get to see a video of it. But So they do have like these exclusion zones that elephants are supposed to be kept out of because um, naturally elephants want to go up to these trees and they want to rub on them and scratch and everything. And so they end up inadvertently destroying the food that they should be eating. Um, so there were, there were, you know, massive areas of where it was just nothing but trees had been downed by elephants. And so they're creating these exclusion zones to try to keep the elephants out for X amount of years so that the trees have a chance to regrow. Um, and then and they move it around. Primarily for the black rhinos. Okay. They yes. said. That's the most okay. important thing is they yep. need that browsing environment. So yep. that's why the elephants couldn't have free roam. Right. So... Thank you. Yeah, they needed areas for them to be able to still be able to eat and everything. But um, the elephants are so intelligent and it's so hilarious because they, um, at first, the fencing that they just had was um, like a couple, it was just a couple of wires that they were able strands to. Strands of Strands, yeah. yeah. And they would go and they figured out how to like use their tusks to be able to pick it up and then just like belly crawl under them. Or they would figure out how to take something else and like a stick or a log or whatever and pull it down so that they weren't getting like hit by all of this um, electricity. And so it's just like one thing after another. So they're constantly having to try to figure out ways to try to outsmart the elephants. Um, but I don't know that that's ever really going to happen because they are so intelligent, but they are so mischievous. So it's quite comical watching the videos of them belly crawling under fences because I never thought an elephant could do that. Yeah, so. it's got to be cool to see. Yeah. <laughs> now, Super um, cute. The babies just like scurry under yeah. and they're like, what? What's the big deal? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand that there's hot wire above them. Just leave their parents behind. Right. <laughs> yep. We're gone. Yep. Yep. So they kept trying out different fencing. So now they have a lower fencing that has like pieces like the hot grass that we use here at the zoo that kind of sticks out from it to try to keep the elephants from crossing those exclusion zones. So I don't know. Yeah. It keeps them busy perpetually and they have entire teams 
of people that are, their employment is to walk the fence lines. Every single square foot of fence line, every linear foot, gets checked every single day by an actual human being and mended as necessary because, yeah, the elephants cause so much damage. Wow. But they're not like they're not angry about it. No. They're like elephants are also one of the reasons that people come to Lewa. They want to see elephants, mm -hmm. and so that helps them with the tourism thing. Um, yeah, and they also had this unique. Um, they have this. It's called the Lewa standard. Mm -hmm. So they are actually limiting the number of tourists that they will accept. Um, they have a certain number of you know beds and rooms and I think everything. It's one hundred and twenty-six per night is the maximum number of tourists that are allowed per night, which yeah. I really really appreciate. Yes. We've heard of places, uh, I guess they said like on the Maasai Mara where it's like everybody and their brother can be there, everyone's in a car and everyone's driving everywhere and it's kind of a free-for-all. But at Lewa, they really focus on trying to have this kind of higher standard of tourism experience. So when you're there, you're not seeing tons of other tourists. In fact, we would go for hours without ever even seeing another vehicle at times. Um, even things like the color of the vehicles, they, it was like tan or green only. They didn't want right red, blue, they didn't want a bunch of like bright unnatural colors and stuff. So that was interesting and it's like it was something more on the organiza organizational side of like things that they have to consider. It, it reminded me of Disney almost. Yeah. Like they've got, they've, got, <laughs> they've got their brand and their standard too and that's um, a part of their success I imagine. I hadn't even really thought of it as like a tourist place because I hear of it as this conservation organization that the Bulling for Rhinos funds, which I didn't explain very well earlier, I wanted to mention like 100% of the funds raised from these Bowling for Rhinos events, whether it's bowling or sometimes they do like wine for wine <laughs> or whatever, different things um, goes to conservation. And of course we say rhino conservation, but it protects, if you're protecting the land where the rhinos lived, you're protecting animals such as tigers and elephants and butterflies and plants. And right. so 100% of the funds go to conservation and Lewa Wildlife Conservancy is one of the places it supports International Rhino Foundation. And then actually Action for Cheetahs mm -hmm. is also something that it doesn't sound right because it's bowling for rhinos event. But like we mentioned, um, it protects all animals. So it does fo have a focus on rhinos, but 100% of these profits go to conservation. And so I always thought of Lewa as like the place you go for bowling for rhinos, you know? Yeah. Like I didn't yeah. think about it as people can sign up and go there and stay. And you should. It's so gorgeous. It like, yeah, I would, I would love to go back with my family as just as a tourist sometimes. And it sounds so different. So you all stay in one place. I was lucky enough. I, I paid for my own safari, um, back in like 2016, but went with the zoo as a group and we traveled a lot. So we stayed at mm -hmm. a different place, like every couple of nights. And then we would just go on a safari like once a day. But you guys stayed at one place and went on multiple safaris. And I guess we should describe what a safari is. Or what did your day look like? Maybe <laughs> I should just let you do that. Well, we did get to, we all stayed at Ngiri House. Mm -hmm. And Ngiri means warthog. So we were at Warthog House. That was our home um, for the majority of our trip there. And in the mornings, we would go out on a morning game drive most of the time. Mm -hmm. And those would last anywhere from one and a half to two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then come back and have breakfast. And then usually the afternoons we were dedicated to visiting the different community projects that were supported. Yeah. Yeah, it was really neat because um, 
the nigiri house isn't really a house that's um for tourists at oh, all okay. um and that's the i think that's the biggest difference is we weren't staying where tourists were staying so there are different lodges where tourists pay and stay and everything we were actually staying at the house where like the board members stay or okay. while we were there we got the pleasure of meeting um people that were traveling through that were doing like documentaries or were doing like research um we actually there was a guy staying there that was doing pancake tortoise research while we were there oh, wow. so oh, it was kind of cool. neat that we got to meet other people and see how their house runs um so it definitely was not like your average tourist experience at all uh it was also interesting because we were very confined to our grounds we weren't allowed to leave the grounds unless we had our driver taking us somewhere because um no exaggeration we would sit outside on the veranda where we eat breakfast or lunch or anything and you'd look what 50 yards away and there'd be lions or rhinos or elephants or wow. anything like that so it was pretty amazing because we were like right off of the savannah. Right so in the middle of it. Always yeah. animals around. Well, yeah, that yeah. sounds so different from my trip, which was unbelievably <laughs> incredible. But, like, to just go out and there's animals there, that yeah. sounds amazing. There well, was the, the one <laughs> afternoon that we all had time to kill, and we were, like, people were reading and lounging by the pool, and we just started hearing this, like, roaring, screaming vocalizations, and we were like, what is that? And we're all looking around and, like, looking out in the bush, and we could hear that whatever sound it was was getting closer. And we're like, oh, my God. And we're sitting there with our binoculars and our phones and, like, ready to, like, dive into our rooms if necessary. And it was this young elephant walking, like, down this trail towards us just, like, wah, like, screaming, <laughs> making a scene. And we were like, what in the world? Because it wasn't alone. There were other elephants nearby. And it was so confusing. We're like, what is happening? It seems like it's in distress. It seems unhappy. And then after like several minutes of this, all of a sudden we see Mama Elephant from the opposite direction, like run and full steam. <laughs> and then they had this beautiful, like they crash into each other and doing all these like purring and grumbling vocalizations. Aww. Like clearly they'd gotten separated yeah. and little one was like terror. It was like the little kid at like the grocery store <laughs> that's like running through the aisles screaming because they lost their mom. Um, so that was like, that was one of my favorite memories of yeah. being there it was so unexpected and <laughs> comical and like also so anthropomorphic. I was like, oh my God, I have a toddler. I, I know that feeling. Like, I get you, mama. Um, and it was so nice that it had a happy ending too. We're like, yay, they found each other. I have it on video, so I can't wait to post it. <laughs> but I mean, and then one of the nights that we were there, like we did, we had animals on the grounds at all time. At breakfast, we had giraffes next to us and Paul and stuff. But my, my uh, most fond memories, I guess, or uh, memorable moments at the house. Um, we were in our room at night. It was like 1.30 in the morning, and I hear this noise, and I'm like, what is happening? And I peeked out the window, and right on the other side of the glass of our window was a buffalo, and he was eating the bush, and we went and looked, and there was an entire herd wow. of buffalo in the ground. So, like, none of us could leave our rooms or anything. It was 1.30. <laughs> yeah. We probably weren't going anywhere anyways. It's pitch black dark. Um, but I startled the buffalo and I remember it running off. And so I thought that was kind of cute, but like come out the next morning, you can tell there was a herd of buffalo out yeah. on the veranda where we eat breakfast right. at. So it's one kinda... of the groundskeepers had a wheelbarrow and like a little shovel and we're like, we can help. We can, <laughs> we, we can help with this part. We do this for a living. I swear. <laughs> I feel you really on good this. At scooping poop. Yeah. <laughs> um, we learned what a tree high rack sounds like. Oh yeah. Ooh. And that was like, I mean, there were all these things that we never expected to see or witness or hear. And I know for me, like every day I was like, how can this get better? And it wasn't even just like all the animal stuff. It was like, the people stuff yeah. too it was like every day I was like how is this going to get better and it, it did it was so cool we got to go to a Maasai village and one of the elders was teaching us like all of the ways that they used to hunt mm -hmm. or trap 
and um, he said that for because they're pastoralists now and they more rely on that they didn't have to but it was like it was so cool they showed us a fire starting demonstration um, and then they do a lot with beadwork like that's one of the ways that the women um, kind of support themselves they have these little micro enterprises where they're raising money and earning money for their homes too so we came home with so much <laughs> so much so many souvenirs for everybody with beadwork and that was really cool and that's kind of a staple of that messiah experience as well. Did you exper experience them being the happiest people you've ever yes. met? Yes. They yeah. live like the most simple lives and they don't need half the things that we need and they're so happy. Like, it's, yeah. it's so, so impressive. Everybody was so nice, so friendly. And like, as far as the happiness aspect, I mean, I think our driver, Kamara, uh, yeah. he epitomized it for me. Like every day he was so upbeat and so happy and he always had a smile on his face and he always was there to like do he always was trying to, he would like listen in our conversations and he's like, Oh, they want to try to find this animal. I'm going to try to find it for him. And like, tried so hard to find a leopard for us. We tried so hard. They're very elusive. That yeah. was, uh, that was like one of the only animals we didn't get to see that was kind of on our bucket list. Yeah. So as far as conservation goes, are there a few things that you guys could share that they are doing that has been really successful? I mean, you've mentioned things briefly, but are there any specific projects or things that people might understand what their money is going towards if they do support one of our Bowling for Rhinos events? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the big things that I really took away from it was all the education stuff that they're doing with their schools. Um, they work really closely with a lot of the schools, not only in Leowa, but actually in surrounding communities outside of Leowa. And they've got a whole... Um, program that they've been doing and they've got like scholarships for kids and everything but they're really really trying to improve uh, their education using technology and so they've got like um, tablets that they're using in classrooms they've got um, where they can come and use them in libraries or they've got them designated to certain classroom grades for different things um, they've got smart boards that they're starting to use because um, education is so hard and it's like books are so expensive nowadays and I mean going the conservation route let's not use more paper right mm, yeah. so they're really trying to educate by um, that kind of example so it was neat to see like classes actually in session and they're using these large smart boards where they can um, pull up reading ex reading examples or um, videos or whatever to try to use for the kids so that's one of the ways that our money is directly going is going into those schools to try to help educate the kids and try to give them a better future um, and honestly along with the education aspect like they're really trying to educate them on human population as well because their mindset has always been, you know, you want large families because that's the only way you can sustain yourself is to have your family help and take care of the entire property. But giving these kids these opportunities to go to different schools um, or to go like on those week-long trips out to Laowa and just see what else there is to experience was pretty neat because I think it's changing a lot of those kids' lives for a long, long time. Right. Yeah, they're focusing their efforts on the next generations. Like, don't make the mistakes that we all did. Like, mm -hmm. here's here's what it needs to look like moving forward. Um, I think my favorite, like, most impactful moment in seeing the community involvement was we went to visit one of the wells, one of the yeah, boreholes. Absolutely. And it was up on top of this hill, and it, um, you know, the irrigation runs down to the community all around it, and it was like this beautiful oasis in the middle of nothing. Mm -hmm. Everything around it was just like desert and death and like you could see dying trees and plants and there were no animals anywhere nearby and then within this fence line this community that literally looked like a tropical oasis every single family was doing their own farming um, and it was absolutely incredible to see like this this would not be possible living here with this quality of life in this location would not be possible 
if not for the efforts that Lewa made to bring them water and make sure that they had that. And um, the elder that came and spoke to us spoke in like his native, his mother language. And it was so cool to have somebody translate for him mm -hmm. and hear him talk about what it was before and, and what it was now, thanks to Lewa. And um, they talked about, you know, it's not just like I can feed myself and my family. Now I have extra crops mm -hmm. that I can take and I can sell. And now I can actually make a little money to send my kids to school yeah. or to, you know, buy a nicer home and things like that. And people are like scrambling to get into those sorts of communities that Lewa is helping create. Like it's a very, very coveted position to like to be able to live in one of those communities. So they talked to us about how the people are like diehard Team Lewa. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much so that like if anybody came around sniffing around trying to ask them about like, hey, if I was going to poach a rhino, how would I? People were turning in their own family members wow. yeah, to local authorities because they're like, you are not messing this up for us. Lewa does amazing things for us. And they understand the importance of like Lewa has animals. That's why Lewa has money. That's why Lewa mm -hmm. can help us. <clears throat> Um, so yeah, that was, that was really impactful for me to see. It was just such a stark contrast, that community that existed in like nothing, nothing around it. I don't know if you can explain this. I'm having a hard time understanding what these boreholes or these wells are doing. How does that help water the grounds around it? Or like, do you know how they build them or dig them or like how it helps water everything? And not just, I imagine like going and scooping a bucket of water. Well, like, because of Mount Kenya, because mm -hmm. of the like unique geographic setup of this region, Mount Kenya actually has like glacial water, like mm -hmm, snow, okay. snow melt and glacial waters, they said and stuff. So it's like they're tapping into that, right? Mm -hmm. Underground like water systems that exist that are coming off of Mount Kenya. Yep. I think that's my understanding of it. And then um, it's interesting. So like then like the community that we were in, because we actually were up at the top where the well is at. And then we walked all the way down to the hill into the actual community. And when you walk down, like, it's elevated. Um, and then they have all of, like, the pipes are running under the ground. And then connected to the pipes are actual um, hoses and stuff like that that okay. go to each of their properties. Okay. And so they can turn on and off their hoses. Mm -hmm. They can run sprinklers mm -hmm. and stuff so like that water to water the their plants. crops. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and it was, it was pretty cool because, like, I know one of the questions that was asked was, like, their biggest crop that they grow, which I thought was really interesting, is green onions. Oh. It grows the easiest there, so and it's a it's a cash cow for them, um, especially like I said in the restaurant and grocery industry and stuff like that. So that's how a lot of the families earn their income is by growing um, green onions. Okay. But surrounding that, there were all these other like taller plants, and we were all like what are these? And they're like, oh, they're actually just wind barriers. Because since they're set down in a valley, um, they do have to worry about the wind coming through. So these other plants that are around it are just there to act as wind barriers so that their green onion crop isn't destroyed. Wow, very smart. Yeah, it was really cool. I don't. There it, was onion in every savory meal. <laughs> <laughs> there was. And FYI, I do not like onions. So that was the funny <laughs> joke the whole trip. So. Amy was living her best life. <laughs> So do you know anything about the rhino numbers, like 30 years ago, 15 years ago? Have Did they tell you about how the differences they've seen or what actually impacted that specifically or how many rhinos they have now? Oh my gosh. They have, what was it, over <clears throat> 5,000 rhinos now? Is that right? Is that wrong? I can't even remember. I wonder. It seems very high. That to is me. very high. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wrong. Like, I'm, I'm, only, I'm like, totally wrong. I don't think there. that's no, about how many black rhinos not. there are. I want to say there was like maybe 150 black rhinos okay. on the property yeah. of Lewa and whites. Which is very high for one property. 200 yes. and something. It was 500, not 5,000. 500. There you go. Yeah, it was closer to 500. Wow. But weren't they down to like less than 100 total? 
wish I would have brought my notes. I know. We wrote this stuff we down. We did. I just didn't memorize <laughs> it. But, I mean, they will... I can tell you this much for, and I looked yeah, up. Yeah, the exact six, numbers don't matter, but like, do you, like, for any this, impact you can share? For the 65,000 acres that is Lewa, because I, I don't oh, yeah. check. Yeah. <laughs> they have so many rhinos now that they are literally relocating them okay. to yes. other conservancies. Mm-hmm. Like, they have hit their max. Um, the carrying capacity. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, they're like, we, we, we've got them. They're breeding. They're doing great. We just can't house them all here. And do you know what specifically made them do so great other than, like. They said the fencing and okay. being able to protect them with their mm-hmm. like their anti-poaching units gosh we haven't even talked that's about what i was going to say i, I to hear about the poaching issues yes. they had was that the biggest issue obviously drought was a huge issue but poaching has had not been an issue i think the last incidence of poaching was in 2019 and yes. prior to that it was like five years 20, yeah i think there was one incident in 2016 but yeah they haven't had any incidents of poaching <clears throat> since 2019 that's incredible i know it's amazing and then prior to that like i said there was one in 2016 but the numbers have been so so little. And again, they said it's because you, you can't successfully poach a rhino within Lewa without the help of somebody in one of yeah. those neighboring communities. Yeah. And because those communities just won't support it, they're like, nope, sorry, yeah. figure out something else. Well, and I think they said also when the pandemic hit, like everybody was hit so hard, tourism went mm. down, obviously, so there was less, there was less travel um, and there was less demand because nobody was able to do anything. But they said since then, their community bond has even grown stronger, which has really helped that even though the tourism has kicked back up, there still have been no incidents. So we did funny. get to see, um, they even have like dog tracking. They, they <laughs> yeah. had um, a bloodhound named, was it Ruby? Yeah. Ruby. <laughs> so like they showed us and talked to us about how they, they mostly use Ruby to track non-poachers. Like yeah. usually the community will reach out to them because maybe local authorities haven't had any luck dealing with an issue. Um, so they'll, they'll be like, somebody stole this, somebody stole that. Can you come and take the dogs and track? And they said like 75 to 80% of the work that they actually do with the dogs is in the communities and not anti-poaching efforts. Yeah. Wow. They're just crime-fighting dogs. Right. Just crime. It's amazing. Awesome. <laughs> yep. And people know those dogs and are afraid of them because they've gotten to see them work in their communities. Like, yeah. And we got to see a demonstration. Um, my sister and one other member of our group were, were poachers <laughs> and like wandered off into the wilderness. And like uh, several minutes later, we followed. And oh, it was child's play. It was. That dog, she didn't even have to like... It's not like she even had to follow their scent trail on the ground. It's like she... It was incredible. She knew exactly where they were and just took off running. Um, But yeah, it was really amazing to watch that in action. And we should mention we had like armed rangers with us every everywhere we went that we were like on foot. Um, I guess in the vehicles you don't have to have an armed ranger with you, but if you're on foot anywhere, they always have an armed ranger with you for your protection because there are so many animals out there and so many of them are dangerous and. And um, people, I guess, that you can encounter could be dangerous, too. So Yeah. Well, and um, on top of just the stuff that they're doing actually in Laowa, uh, Laowa works with um, the Northern Rangeland Trust, mm-hmm. and they're in other communities, especially they said the biggest issue right now with poaching is on the coast, mm-hmm. um, the northern coast, uh, right? Wasn't it northern? Eastern, anyway. Eastern, yeah. But they're working on the coast, so they're actually working directly with the NRT um, because that's where the biggest issues of poaching are. Like, we, they showed us pictures and stuff like that of, like, one of their poaching bus that they had just had a couple weeks prior. And, like, I think there was, like, 160 dick-dick that were in that. It was dick it was yeah. amazing. Like, like bushmeat trade. Like, yeah. yeah. So that's where a lot of their poaching efforts have really um, moved to. So even though they're several hundred miles away, Lewa is directly helping out with poaching in other areas of wow. Kenya. 
So do some of the funds from this go to these anti-poacher rangers or po like? I know for the Indonesia trip, like a lot of the money that goes to the International Rhino Foundation, like provides them with gear, the boots yeah. they need, the you know, everything. Yeah. 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 I remember we kept asking them specific dollar amounts for like different things because we wanted to be able to convey that. Yeah. And they're like, um, get get back with us. We'll yeah. put some numbers together for you because we think that would be impactful. Like when you're at bowling mm -hmm. for rhinos and thinking about donating or bidding on something, then you would know X amount of money would directly impact rhinos in this way and. Um, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. The people were incredible. Like I said, I feel for the first time in, in a long time very hopeful about conservation. And the good news is lots of other organizations are reaching out to yeah. Lewa. And Lewa is tutoring and coaching these other organizations like in South Africa amazing. and stuff. And saying, here's what works for us. Give it a try. Mm -hmm. um, we're here if you need help, if you want feedback and stuff. So it's amazing that... You know, they're like they're not taking all this knowledge that they've learned and like keeping it to themselves. They're sharing it with other organizations. So hopefully hopefully it's having this ripple effect that we you know, that's the whole idea here is yeah. like, let's all work together to figure this thing out, you know? Absolutely. Because yeah. it's not just it's not just a us problem or a you problem, it's a all of us problem. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a whole worldwide problem that we're trying to solve. And so Bowling for Rhino, as you mentioned, also supports uh, the International Rhino Foundation, which um, has work in Africa and Indonesia, mm -hmm. and you know there are Sumatran and Javan rhinos. There are very, very few of them left. Um, probably less than fifty Sumatran rhinos, and I think there's about seventy-six Javan rhinos, which uh -huh. is the whole world. This is yeah. insane. And I had the incredible opportunity. To, I also had a bull and rhinos trip, and I chose Indonesia and um, got to see a whole different part of the world. But it's crazy. I was trying to remember the number. But since Bowling for Rhinos started um, helping with these rhino, they're called RPUs or Rhino Protection Units, um, like the Bowling for Rhinos fundraiser helps support them and, and pay for a lot of things going into that. But I, I couldn't remember the years, but since they started, I think it was like 15 or 20 years there had been poaching. And then as soon as they got these rhino protection units out there, there was no poaching for, I think it was over 20 years. But um, it's just incredible what these funds go to and yeah. how much they can save and as a whole like the American Association of Zookeepers nationwide has raised over eight million dollars for bowling for rhinos through the bowling for rhinos fundraisers to help with all of this and has just done like so much good and made a huge huge impact um, so before we get into like what anybody can do, do you guys have any last things that we didn't share yet that we, you wanted to talk about or, or even just like a favorite story or experience or something, a favorite animal you got to see? Obviously, like we mentioned, you know, rhinos are the focus of this, but it's a bustling ecosystem. There's so much more than just rhinos. This protects like, Oh, um, one of my favorites, I think, and Wendy and I were super excited. We were out on a trip, one of our night drives and we had told our driver like what animals we had worked with or whatever and this whole time we were there we didn't think there were any hippos <laughs> in Kenya and we were on a drive and we were like where is he taking us because it was a different part of Leia than we've ever been to or whatever but along the way we stopped because we could see a vulture in a tree and it ended up being a Rupal's vulture and we were both like I mean I'm speaking for you I don't mean to be speaking for you <laughs> but like I think we were both like over the moon to see a Rupal's vulture anyway because we are lucky enough to have them here at the Cincinnati Zoo in the African department um, but then he came across uh, we came across this area and there were two hippos there as well so we were just like what is happening here um, but the next day I think it was the next day we were sitting 
at lunch and there were all these vultures and we're like what is happening like it was it was insane because we didn't think we were really going to see any vultures because at this point we're like there's things dying left and right but there's no vultures and that, then why is that sorry i don't interrupt your story no it's why, okay yeah if there were dead animals everywhere there should have been tons of vultures is it because they're so endangered no it's because there's a plethora of food oh, oh you're and they yeah. were sick of buffalo yeah that's oh what was gosh. that was there was just so much food available almost every carcass we passed was a buffalo oh they're expecting gosh. to lose 60 percent of their buffalo by the time this drought is over just because they need so much more food they're larger yeah and they for whatever reason it. yeah i wonder they, if they are just not able to adapt and eat other plants as yeah. well as some of the okay. other animals that um makes sense. Yeah, and it's like they vultures were just over buffalo. They were not interested. Yeah. So the day that that tree was full of vultures, yeah. it was because a grevy zebra. A grevy zebra had died. And but there were... was over a hundred and fifty vultures, like between uh, white-backed and ripples vultures, and it was just yeah. the most spectacular thing to see. Oh my gosh! Cool. The first time I ever seen <laughs> a group of vultures going to town on a carcass was incredible this, i didn't know they made the sounds that they make because we take care yeah. of them here but it's so different when you have a hundred of them or even yeah. 20 of them like yeah. oh. i mean there's so many stories i could tell but i mean that's one of the ones that sticks out because i never i never really expected to see like a couple of vultures much less that many i guess at one mm -hmm. time I think so. they're picky eaters, apparently. I, I would have never guessed about vultures. Well, <laughs> right. Isn't that amazing? That makes me feel a little better about our picky animals in captivity. <laughs> like, I'm like, you think that the vultures out in Africa are turning their nose up to such and such? And like, like oh, yeah. it turns out they actually do. <laughs> um, but I think we, I, I think another moment that was like just so cool, our, our ranger, Kamara. Rangers are amazing. Um, he, for a time in his life, was part of a, um, a hand rearing team for, for black rhinos. And we were like, what, what, what are you, t and this is again, talking about like the kind of impact and intervention that Lewa participates in that you could, you know, argue like, should we be doing that? Um, so there was a, a certain female black rhino that was blind, and every time she would give birth, she just could not keep track of her babies, couldn't keep them safe, couldn't take care of herself and the babies. So anytime she would give birth, they would end up having to hand raise that baby. And two of them were still on grounds, and he took us um, to visit them, and they remember him. And oh love. my gosh. It was just like the experience yeah. we've had with Fiona. Yeah. Like, it was absolutely incredible. <laughs> I don't even know though if we put Fiona somewhere else for a few years. I don't know if she'd come. <laughs> she may or may not, but these black rhinos, um, Katui and Elvis. Yeah. Oh my God! And like to hear him vocalizing with them and and watching their reaction to him, it was absolutely incredible. Oh. It was something you would think would only happen in a zoo, and it's like no, no it's happening it in the wild too. Oh, that's amazing. And not without um, certain you know side effects though, because Katui was living really close to like. A village. A village, and oh. I think that the village had to make certain modifications <laughs> that didn't necessarily need, need to be elsewhere because he was just in incredibly comfortable around people and yeah. felt safe around people and kind of got a little too <laughs> familiar <laughs> with people at times. Um, but it was so unexpected um, and magical to see that and to see the bond that he still has with them like years and years and years later. It was like, he's still mama to them. Yeah, it was awesome. really... Yeah, we were, I think everybody had tears in their eyes. Yes. Like everybody yeah. in both vehicles Absolutely. was like, this is so beautiful, so cool. Like, he gets out of the vehicle and stands next to them. He can, he, yeah. He was like, no photos, you'll get me in trouble. Oh, so, so, yeah. 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 So, I just wanted to highlight the trust that these rhinos had for him, and he had yeah. with them, but... 
Oh my goodness. Well, I didn't want to steal Wendy. I thought this was going to be your story, but on one of our very first nights, we actually got to watch a male and female lion breed multiple times. And that is something I definitely <laughs> never thought I would see in the wild. Yeah. So, it, I mean, there, but there were so many stories like that that we could talk about, like so many memorable moments. We but... felt like the paparazzi, like ch chasing <laughs> these animals down and like, we're like, give them some privacy, back off. But they honestly, they seem so habituated, so comfortable with the, the safari vehicles it's like you get so close to them mm -hmm. and they don't even care they yeah. just like look past you look around you get up and leave when they need to but mm -hmm. the same with the breeding lions <laughs> it was just us like trailing <laughs> along like well this is a little creepy but <laughs> it's also amazing it's so great that reproduction's happening yeah. i was just amazed that like we found out that all of the rangers um they have posts like there's on foot rangers that have posts every day and every <clears> single day they have to walk their area and they have have to account for every single rhino that wow. is in their area and that to me was absolutely amazing so that's one of, I think that's one of the reasons too that these animals are like like you said habituated is because they're used to seeing the rangers out on foot they're used to seeing like rangers they've got metal medical vehicle rangers that are out in case something happens or whatever so all these vehicles are always around um, do they have vet care be, there? Yeah. They have like a veterinarian yeah. on yeah. grounds? Actually, while we were on grounds, um, there were staff <sighs> visiting from San Diego Zoo Global. Yeah. And because they are helping to build um, a veterinary clinic that will be oh, right amazing. there in Lewa. Yeah. And it's going to collaborate and kind of work alongside of like the human clinic as well, especially for like zoonotic diseases mm -hmm. like anthrax and things that will affect both populations or one might be a vector for the other or a reservoir or whatever. Um, so yeah, so they even do have um, veterinary intervention when they deem it's necessary yeah. and depending on the species, um, like Grevy zebra, there's the largest population of Grevy zebra at Lewa, mm -hmm. and again because of Lewa's efforts, so that's a species that they almost always intervene okay. yeah. um, if they can. If and Grevy zebra are endangered as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Highly, yeah. Highly. yeah. Yeah, it was really cool seeing them. They, I didn't. I mean, I don't want to say that the plains zebra are not cool, but the grevies are so beautiful. They're yeah, like psychic. Their stripes are like psychedelic <laughs> compared to the others, and you would even see them mixing together too, mm -hmm. which is interesting. But huh. I don't think that they interbreed, right? No, they don't interbreed. <clears> but yeah, they do hang out together. It was. It was really neat to see that. So many things. I feel like, like, yeah, we could steal your whole season of your podcast. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wanted to highlight, again, all of the amazing work that Bowling for Rhinos does, as Tammy and Wendy have shared, and um, we started off 2013, you know, Wendy got this chapter going, we hosted our first ever Bowling for Rhinos, was that 2013 or 2014? I think it was 13. I, oh, it might have been 14. I remember Jenna setting these insane goals for us in the beginning, being like, we can make 10 grand. I'm like, Jenna, you're new to this. This is really hard. There's no way we're going to make that much money. <laughs> and then we would like blow those goals I out of the water. That's where I was going to start. Is I think the first one we made like 11 grand, 13 was the next year. And then we just like went up from there. And in 2018, our Bowling for Rhinos event raised uh, just over $25,000. Then in 2019, it was over $35,000. And then of course... Pandemic hit, but we were still around eighteen thousand. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and I don't remember what last year was. Um, I think last. Um, I can't. Remember. Somewhere around yeah, there. Or seventeen. Yeah, and then something. this year, Tammy, you just got in our final. We had our event um, on October 29th, mm -hmm. and we have our final numbers in. So, do yep. you want to share what we did this year? Yeah, I'm super excited. We are sending in twenty thousand dollars <gasps> ah, for Bowling amazing. for Rhinos this year. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. 
first time back <laughs> since the pandemic, yes, we did not go for sponsorships this no, we year, did not. which usually accounts for almost ten grand or so. So Easy. that means people coming and paying to bowl and then supporting through the uh, we have a live auction. Yes. Is that what it's called? Silent, Silent auction. auction. <laughs> Sorry, not a live auction. I'm like, that's not what it is. Um, not an online auction, but a silent auction, yeah. and then like merchandise and different things we sold. But twenty grand is amazing. So um, hopefully, we'll find out if we are the number one for twenty twenty two. Yep. Um, but we are sending Ellie from yes. being the number one from last year. So, anyways, <laughs> there are four of us that have been able to go and experience how amazing um, this. The work that's being done because of this money and bowling for rhinos is incredible. So, um, a what can I do? I guess we can all chime in. <laughs> but basically, if you even if you don't live in Cincinnati, you have a local zoo. If yes. they have an AZAC chapter, they are probably hosting some sort of bowling for rhinos that you could donate. You can donate online to um, the national chapter, of course. But um, go to an event. Um, just check out these places that we've been talking about. International Rhino Foundation is amazing. Lewa is amazing. Um, do you guys have anything you wanted to add as far as what they can do? No, I was going to say the same thing. Like, even if you're not here in Cincinnati, if there's a AZAC chapter anywhere near you, support them. Like, do anything you can, whether it's just going to an event and buying a beer, or whether it's, like, actually making a donation or doing a sponsorship or donating an item for an auction or whatever. Anything that you can do to support any AZAC chapter. We're all doing really good work. We all have different efforts that we're trying to reach out to. But like Jenna said, pretty much every AZAC chapter across the globe or across the U.S. Um, is raising money for Bowling for Rhinos in some capacity. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. And I just wanted to give props to all three of you because like you talk about these numbers, like it's easy to raise $50,000 or $25,000, $30,000, whatever it is each year. And like the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes, I know it's a massive team that helps out with it, but the three of you have taken lead on several years. So I want to give props to you guys because it's amazing. And this work you were able to support is incredible. Thank, sure. thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's always been so fun for and sure. rewarding. Yeah. And the events we throw are fun. I mean, usually <laughs> <laughs> they're a good time. So, especially Bowling for Rhinos. Yep. That's near and dear to our hearts. Um, but, yeah, it goes to such a good cause. It's a lot of fun. And I do want to say thank you to all the committee people this year. Like, um, there were several people that helped out. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that, you know, we had. A, I do have a lot of support. I do have a lot of help. And I don't want to take any or all of the recognition for it because I couldn't do it without everybody else on the committee. So uh, thank you to Ellie and Allie and Paul and Ashley and... Don and Wendy and Jenna and everybody else, anybody, I know I'm probably forgetting people, even people that work the night of the event like Colleen and Sarah and Michelle and Michael Berry and everybody, just like, thank you all for everybody's help. I'm sorry if I missed any names. I didn't mean to, but it really does take a lot of people to run this event. Yes, definitely. And I'm just going to throw this out there one more time. Next late summer, if you have a business that wants to sponsor <laughs> a Bowling for Rhinos event, we would be more than happy to talk to you. So, um, but... Really, thank you all for listening, and, um, you know, if you can, get out there to a Bowling for Rhinos event, and we appreciate everything that you do do. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and Wendy, Tammy, thank you all for joining us and sharing some stories. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Until next time.